Hill grabs his bag and beats a retreat, going to the stable to hire a horse rig. Turns out it's worked by Marcellus Washburn, one of Hill's old partners. He lives in the town. He tells Hill it's not Brooklyn, but it's nice. Hill tells him it's not even Dubuque, which is actually very nice. Marcellus asks what he's doing there. Last he heard, he was selling steam autos. No, not anymore. Someone actually invented one. So, he's back to selling boys' bands. This is those wonderful people out there in the dark. I'm David Jansen. Episode 29, The Music Man. As an undergraduate, I was a double major, biology and chemistry. In organic chemistry, I learned the concept of the isomer, the idea that organic compounds not only have specific constituents and atomic construction, they have an orientation. You can have an organic compound and it would have left-handed variants and right-handed variants and they might act slightly or very differently from one another. Interesting. I thought about this from the viewpoint of the last pod, the Asphalt Jungle, and this week's pod, The Music Man. Jungle is about a tough guy who's on the wrong side of the law, in a big dirty city, trying to score so he can get away, back to the farm, produced at MGM, the studio known for its color musicals. Music Man starts off as a story about a confidence man on the wrong side of the law who establishes a con in a small-town representation of middle America, trying to score so he can get back to the big, dirty city. Produced at Warner Brothers, the epitome of a studio for black-and-white, gritty crime films. Neither of these G's gets his way. The hooligan pays dearly in the end of Jungle. In Music Man, the con man gets caught but wins and wins something more than money. He sticks in the sticks in a little town in the Midwest. The two films are isomers, made of similar materials with different outcomes. Jungle is hard to watch, with its tough and tragic ending. Music Man is completely uplifting, a poem to the America of a bygone era. I rewatch most of the films I pot about, to hone in on the who, what, and where. I really don't have to do so for the Music Man. I've seen it at least once a year since age 10, usually around the 4th of July, which is when the story takes place and is the holiday it embodies so well. The all-American, fireworking, head-back, looking-up-at-the-sky, patriotic-singing holiday of holidays. And all due to the enthusiasm, good old American stick and talent of Meredith Wilson. The entertainment industry doesn't produce people like Wilson anymore. Born at the turn of the century in Mason City, Iowa, the real River City, he was a musician, composer, playwright, radio star, band leader, and author. He grew up in Iowa, a son of the Midwest, and became an accomplished flautist and piccolo player, 
so much so that he attended the Juilliard School. He later played in John Philip Sousa's band, talk about 76 trombones, and for the New York Philharmonic under the master Toscanini. He worked for a number of radio stations in the 30s and got into film through scoring Chaplin's The Great Dictator, nominated for an Oscar for Best Score, and arranging the music for The Little Foxes, with the same result. He served in the U.S. Army in World War II and moved around at every level in network radio after the war. In 1950, Wilson met playwright and screenwriter Franklin Lacey, and they began an eight-year journey to capture Wilson's memories of his boyhood in Mason City. Thirty revisions and forty songs later, they produced the Broadway show, The Music Man, premiering in 1957. The musical of con man Harold Hill and the people of River City was a smash, running for almost 1,400 performances. The recording of the original cast won the first Grammy in its category, I know, it played almost every Sunday in the Jansen household for a decade. Wilson went on to write the unsinkable Molly Brown for the stage, as well as finding time to pen, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Another personal note, as a contribution to President Kennedy's new frontier push for physical fitness, Wilson wrote, and recorded with a certain member of the Music Man cast, a record called Chicken Fat, which was designed to get lazy American kids up and moving around, more so than their Soviet counterparts, and which my P.E. teacher in grade school used weekly to get us to exercise. And not the three-minute version. Oh, no. It was a full six minutes. I can still hear Robert Preston singing, Go, you chicken fat, go. Inspiring. Warner Brothers, not known for their hit film musicals, took one look at the Broadway performance of the show and, rubbing its hands, outbid all other comers for the film rights. Wilson had a contract that gave him considerable say in the film, with the result that the director of the stage version, Morton DaCosta, was signed to direct and also produce, ensuring the intact transition of the story from Broadway to the screen. DaCosta started as an actor, then moved to directing for the stage, including the hits No Time for Sergeants, and Annie Mame, as well as Music Man. He went on to produce and direct the film adaptation of Annie Mame after Music Man. He had Robert Burks as cinematographer, who was also responsible for The Fountainhead, The Glass Menagerie, and The Enforcer. He shot 12 films for Hitchcock, including such megas as Strangers on a Train, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and The Birds. Not too bad. Bill Ziegler edited the film for DaCosta. He later went on to work with him on MAME as well as editing My Fair Lady and working for Hitchcock on Strangers on a Train and Rope. Pretty good crew behind the camera to make the musical pop off the screen, which it does beautifully. And a cast perfect for this wonderful musical. If you were putting over a post-World War II musical, especially a Rodgers and Hammerstein venture, you had to have Shirley Jones. Playing Marion Peru, the librarian, she's perfect as a singer and great in the arc of her acting. She was under a personal contract with Rodgers and Hammerstein after they heard her at an open casting call in the 50s and performed in the film musicals Oklahoma, Carousel, and April Love before Music Man. Interestingly, she'd won the Oscar earlier in her career, in 1960, 
for Best Supporting for an Uncharacteristic Bad Girl and Non-Singing, performance as Lula Baines, Call Girl, in Elmer Gantry, opposite Burt Lancaster. She may also be best known for her TV role as the mother to The Partridge Family, the long-running show about a singing family that made the cast stars in the 70s, including her stepson, David Cassidy. Still going at 89, and her last film role as recent as 2018, she's a class act and a tremendous singing voice. Unknown to most of the cast, she was pregnant during the filming of Music Man, and her costumes often needed slight letting out. What a trooper! The supporting players are incredible and provide a great deal of the humor of the film. Buddy Hackett, not my favorite actor, but nice and steady here, plays the foil Marcellus for Harold Hill and his con. How could they have saddled him with that awful song, Shapoopy? Ugh. Hermione Gingold, a character actor ne plus ultra, is acerbic and wonderful as the mayor's wife, Mrs. Shin. From the British stage to Hollywood, she played it all, appearing in such memorable films as Around the World in 80 Days. Everyone was in that film. Gigi, Bell Book and Candle, terrific in that, and A Little Night Music. She's perfectly in everyone's business as the wife of the mayor and wonderful as a stage-struck matron after Hill charms her into it. She has some killer lines, many at the expense of Paul Ford, who plays her husband, the mayor. Ford was known for his pompous characters and wonderfully, slightly off voice. He's barely in control of his once-quiet town after Hill shows up. He appeared in a huge range of films, such as The Naked City, All the King's Men, 1949, Advise and Consent, and The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Ford vs. Gingold, priceless. Pert Kelton plays Marion's mother, Mrs. Peru, reprising her role as the Irish matron from the Broadway play. What a voice and accent. The school board is played by the real-life barbershop quartet, the Buffalo Bills, and they are aces. The way Hill tricks them into singing whenever he wants to dodge them is priceless, and they know he's tricking them. They just enjoy singing together too much. They, too, reprise their roles from Broadway. And then the key role of Winthrop Peru, Marion's brother. Oh, what was that kid's name? Um, a little redhead. He seemed to have a promising future. Let's see. Oh, yeah, little Ronnie Howard. Whatever happened to him? He was eight when the film came out. Now, you can't have a film about a confidence man without the leading man. And the obvious choice was the actor who had anchored the hugely successful Broadway run. Except Warner Brothers had a streak of subbing in well-known actors in roles others had made famous. Well, specifically Jack Warner liked to help out in that way. He offered the role of Hill to Cagney and Crosby at first, but both turned it down, wisely. Warner then had the brainstorm of Sinatra, but he'd already punted a musical comedy with 1955's Guys and Dolls. Warner even went so far as to offer it to Cary Grant. Can you imagine? Grant told Warner he wouldn't even go watch the film if he didn't cast the Broadway star that had made the role. He noted nobody could do that role as well as Bob Preston. Plus, Wilson reminded Warner that he had approval of the cast. Robert Preston was safe in the role the whole time. Preston had come up through the Pasadena Playhouse in the 30s and was the good-looking lead or second lead in such films as Union Pacific, the terrific Beau Jest from 1939, 
and this gun for hire. He was suave and had a tremendous voice, as well as, at times, a cool pencil-thin mustache. His acting was interrupted by his service in World War II. When he returned, it was in middling pictures. As he noted, I played the lead in all the B pictures and the villain in all the epics. With this fallow period, he turned to the stage and was rewarded with the role of a lifetime, Harold Hill in the Broadway Music Man. Preston won the Tony for his work and, thanks to Wilson and Cary Grant, he got to use his inimitable talents and voice in the film role, plus in Chicken Fat. Can't forget that. Though Preston was 44 when he played Hill in the film, he and Jones made a wonderful couple, their romance bursting to the fore after much arguing in the first acts of Music Man. When you've played a role more than a thousand times, you have an idea what works. Harold Hill drove a renaissance of Preston's career on the screen, playing character roles from then forward, including How the West Was Won, Junior Bonner, wonderful in that flavorful role, Mame, Fun in Victor Victoria for Blake Edwards, The Last Starfighter, and Finnegan Begin Again, working up to age 68. What a happy ending to a happy film. Spoilers ahead. We're treated to Charlie Cowell, the traveling amble salesman, being run out of Brighton, Illinois, onto a train car as it pulls out. The conductor is played by the inimitable Percy Helton. He's the victim of an earlier traveling salesman who's ruined the territory, Harold Hill. Wherever Hill goes, the townspeople heat up tar and pluck chickens in preparation for the next salesman. The car full of salesmen break into the main title, Rock Island song in sympathy about how tough it is to be a traveling salesman in the day and age of 1912. Nobody gives credit. Cash for the merchandise. But what about Hill, the music man? He's successful. Cal enlightens everyone about Hill. He offers to organize a boys' band with himself as the leader and sell them music and instruments and uniforms. Except he knows nothing about music. He's a thimble rigger and a fake who ruins the territory. The train crosses the state line into River City, Iowa. Our family still pronounces it that way. Population 2,212. No way Hill would try to pull his scam in Iowa. They're too tight with money. As the train pulls out, one of the salesmen stands and says, He's intrigued. He'll have to give Iowa a try. It's Hill. Hill walks through the main street of Metropolitan River City, asks for a good hotel, and is told that he should try the Palmer House in Chicago, which is still there. It's a Hilton now. He gets a lot of the same guff from the townspeople, and he compliments them on their friendliness. They tell him about their attitude in the song, Iowa Stubborn. You know, they can be cold as their falling thermometer in December if you ask them about their weather in July. The town is middle America in the flesh, decked out for the 4th of July holiday. Hill grabs his bag and beats a retreat, going to the stable to hire a horse rig. Turns out it's worked by Marcellus Washburn, one of Hill's old partners. He lives in the town. He tells Hill it's not Brooklyn, but it's nice. Hill tells him it's not even Dubuque, which is actually very nice. Marcellus asks what he's doing there. Last he heard, he was selling steam autos. No, not anymore. Someone actually invented one. So, he's back to selling boys' bands. Marcellus tells him that the Iowans don't buy anything they don't already have. That the stuck-up librarian who gives piano will expose him right away. 
Hill confidently tells him that librarians who give piano are his specialty. As night comes on, Hill asks Marcellus what's new. What's the problem in town that he can exploit to create a need for a band? Hill sees a bunch of kids looking into the billiard parlor and learns they have a new pool table. That's it. Hill goes to the town square and engages crowd on the evils of pool in the song, Well, you got trouble, my friends. Billiards is okay. It's a skill. But pool is for out-of-town jaspers. It's trouble with a capital T that rhymes with P that stands for pool. Next thing you know, medicinal wine from a teaspoon, then beer from a bottle. And ragtime. Kids will be buckling their knickerbockers below the knee if they have a pool table. The crowd goes wild. Marcellus gives Hill the high sign as the librarian, Marion Peru, walks by on her way home. Hill tries to make time with her, concluding he won't be in town long. Good, she says. Marion starts a piano lesson and song with a pupil, Amaryllis. Marion talks to her widowed mother about Hill. Mrs. Peru says she might have found out what Hill wanted. It devolves into Marion complaining that all the women of River City ignore her counsel and advice. Mrs. Peru comes out that Hill may be Marion's last chance. Quite a jump. Marion's brother Winthrop comes home. Wow, he looks like a young Ron Howard. And Amaryllis tries to invite him to her party. He won't say her name because he has a lisp and bursts into tears when forced to talk to her. Marion tells Amaryllis that her brother doesn't talk very much because of the lisp and his father having passed away. Amaryllis says she tries to be patient with him and says goodnight to him on the evening star every night, but he never answers. Marion tells her she'll have lots of time for sweethearts, and Amaryllis tells her, no, she'll end up an old maid like Marion. Oh, my God. She plays her last piano piece for the night as Marion sings, Goodnight, my someone. The next day, the town is enjoying a patriotic sing-along, anchored by Mrs. Shin, the mayor's officious wife, as well as the officious Mayor Shin himself. Meanwhile, the school board is bickering amongst themselves. Mrs. Shin tries to put on a stage spectacle, but Tommy Gilas, the town troublemaker, interrupts it with a firecracker. The constable grabs Tommy, and the mayor continues the show, trying to give excerpts from the Gettysburg Address, only to be thrown off track by Hill catcalling from the back about a pool table in town. Remembering Hill's stirring address from the previous night, the townspeople take up the call about the pool table. Is it a pool table or isn't it? Hill suddenly appears dressed as a band leader, Professor Harold Hill, and paints the picture of a boys' band to focus their wayward youth in the song 76 Trombones. His enthusiastic rendition paints a living, breathing picture of a world-class band for the entire town, including the mayor and the school board. Marion interrupts their reverie, asking, What band? And the mayor demands the board gets Hill's credentials. He's a by-God spellbinder. The constable, played by the wonderful Charles Lane, recaptures Tommy, who's been drum-majoring in the imaginary band. Professor Hill intervenes on Tommy's behalf, telling the constable to watch how he breaks up a gang. He asks Tommy to help with the band, then links Tommy with a passing girl, Zanita, instructing him to take her to the library, but gives him some money to take her via the candy kitchen. The constable says Hill is a bright young fella. He only made two mistakes. Zanita is the mayor's daughter, and the mayor owns the billiard parlor and the new pool table.
That night, 4th of July continues at Madison Park. Hill waits to talk to the ladies who surround Mrs. Shin, but they give him the cold shoulder. The school board shows up and asks for his credentials. In fact, make him put up a bond. Hill listens to their voices and discerns they'd be perfect as a barbershop quartet. He plays a note on a pitch pipe, gives them a little coaching, and they row off as a perfect quartet. Hill tells Mrs. Shin they'll never be seen without one another again. Mrs. Shin says they've hated each other for years. Hill sings them the cue of a few notes, and they perform sincere and perfect harmony. Hill gives them the slip as they sing and tries to make time with Marion again. The board finishes the song to the beauty and brilliance of the holiday fireworks in the background. Hill pursues Marion, and she coldly calls him Mr. Hill. He rejoins, Oh, please, please, Professor Hill. She asks at which college he learned his bad manners. But wait, he's a Gary Conservatory man himself. Gold medal class of aught five. The next day, Hill begins to sell families on the band with his snake oil approach, getting them to sign contracts. Marcellus helps him make signs advertising the band, and Hill plots the next four weeks. Enough time to get the uniforms, instruction books, and instruments. He's going to employ his think system of playing music to keep the town cowed until the uniforms and instruments show up, he collects, and catches the last train out. That night, Hill and Marcellus are hanging out at the stable. The ladies who cluster around Mrs. Shin stop Hill and tell him how impressed they are with his efforts. Mrs. Shin has a bunion and flexes her ankle to soothe it. Hill tells her every move bespeaks Delsart. She must accept the chair of the ladies' auxiliary for the classic dance, mustn't she, ladies? He's converted Mrs. Shin. Now, he muses, about Marion. The ladies gasp. She advocates dirty books, like the Rubiyat of Omar Khayyam, Chaucer. It comes out that old miser Madison, who funded the picnic park, the hospital, the gymnasium, that miser Madison, who did he think he was, was a friend of Marion's father. In his will, he left the library building to the town, but all the books to Marion, ensuring an ongoing paid position for her. But the ladies think there was some hanky-panky going on. They explain it all in the song, Pick a Little, Talk a Little. The school board shows up for Hill's credentials and he invites them to the hotel to get them, but first starts singing Good Night Ladies in tune with Pick a Little. The board, of course, picks up the tune and Hill has ducked them again. In the stable, Amaryllis wants to visit the horses, while Hill talks about going to visit Marion at the library and ask about her so-called reputation. Marcellus talks about fixing up Hill with a Sunday school teacher, and Hill launches into a counter with the song The Sadder But Wiser Girl to Amaryllis's delight. Hill shows up at the quiet library and tells Mary he knows all about her sordid past. She tells him to make a selection, and he says he has. He wants to take out the librarian. He muses about dropping a bag of marbles, destroying the quiet, then sings Marion the Librarian. All the youngsters in the library dance, and Hill departs the chaos after stealing a kiss from a seemingly more liberated Marion. The next day, Hill shows up at the Shin House and engages with the mayor, tricking him into considering buying a flugelhorn if his son has the genetic gift of the same hands as does the mayor. The mayor signs a contract 
then remembers he doesn't have a son. Hill flees. Hill continues to Mrs. Peru's house, talking to her about Winthrop becoming a coronet player. Winthrop, listening from a treehouse, literally drops in on the conversation, but won't talk to the professor. He runs off. Mrs. Peru feels Hill will get Winthrop to play in the band eventually, due to his blarney, and asks where he's from. Gary, Indiana, gold medal class of Ot five at the conservatory. He then sings Mrs. Peru, Gary, Indiana, named for Albert Gary of judiciary fame. Marion shows up, and Hill at last figures out Marion is related to Mrs. Peru. Marion is against Winthrop joining the band. Mrs. Peru is for it. Hill suggests that they ask the father to break the tie, and Marion tells him their father died two years ago, and Winthrop has been confused and sad about it since. Hill says he's deeply sorry. Marion storms off, and Hill says to her mother he'll continue to try to talk to Marion, as he's sure she's as lovely as herself wishes her a good day, and calls her widow Peru as he leaves. Mrs. Peru talks to Marion in the kitchen and wonders why she doesn't encourage Hill more. She asks Marion what she's waiting for, a knight in shining armor? Marion answers by singing the song, Being in Love. That night at the library, Marion sees the Indiana State Educational Journal and looks up Hill's alma mater. The next day, the Wells Fargo wagon is coming, Better than UPS. Better than Amazon. It may be the band instruments. The whole town sings the Wells Fargo wagon. Even the mayor is excited. Marion runs up to him and says she's found something very interesting about Hill's schooling. At that moment, the wagon unloads and Hill distributes the instruments to the boys, including Winthrop. Winthrop is ecstatic about the coronet and hugs his sister, showing more excitement and engagement than he has in two years. This warms Marion's heart, and she tears the relevant page on the conservatory from the journal and gives the mayor the book. Hill tells the boys to stay off the streets and practice their instruments by thinking about the minuet in G. La-dee-da-dee-da-dee-da-dee-da. He hums a few bars for the boys, and they finish humming the song. Hill is still waiting for the delivery of the uniforms. In the gym, the boys practice the minuet with Hill through the Think System, while Mrs. Shin's dance troupe practices impressions of Grecian urns. A boy asks Hill how to use the little spigots on the side of his instrument, and Hill fends him off. Hill gets Tommy to keep the boys practicing, humming the minuet, while he heads to the candy kitchen, where he runs into Marion. The mayor bustles in and accuses Tommy of romancing Zanita, but Hill defends Tommy and says the mayor will be standing in line to shake Tommy's hand when they play their first concert. Hill treats Marion to a fountain drink, and they discuss his courage with the mayor and the think system. Marion has softened to Professor Hill and lets the inconsistencies in his story go. He arranges to finally see her some evening. The school board catches Hill that night at his hotel to get his credentials. He starts with a few notes of Light a Rose, and they slam into it. It's matched with a corresponding song by Marion, Will I Ever Tell You, at her home, and they trade verses. Winthrop wanders up and talks to his mother and Marion about what he does with Hill, and Winthrop sings a reprise of Gary, Indiana. Charlie Cowell, the amble salesman, passes by and asks Marion where he can find the mayor. He has the dope on Hill and has to deliver it to Shin, 
and only has minutes before his train pulls out. Marion casts her wiles at Cal and convinces him to stay, dancing with him. As the train whistle sounds and the train pulls out, she tells him to run for it. He blows up at her and tells her that there are music teachers under Hill's spell in every county in the Midwest. They haven't heard the last from Charlie Cowell. It's the night of the big musicale put on by Mrs. Shin's group, plus an ice cream social. Hill stops by her house to talk with Marion, and she quizzes him about all the music teachers in all the counties in the Midwest, but he puts her mind at ease. He arranges to meet her at the footbridge at the picnic park, which is pretty racy stuff. She's transfixed. At the musicale, Cal is looking for Shin. The kids are running around on the stage, though Marcellus is trying to clear them out for Mrs. Shin's dance recital. The kids want to dance, those crazy youngsters. And they do, to the song Shapoopy, which is awful. The dance troupe finally takes the stage, and Hill goes to the footbridge to meet Marion. As he waits, he imagines himself actually leading a band, but soon dismisses the daydream. Marion shows up and tells Hill that she doesn't expect anything from him, that he's given her something wonderful. She sings, Till There Was You. Oh, that was re-recorded by a pop group. What was their name? Hmm, four promising youngsters with mop-top haircuts. I can't remember. Oh, well. Hill and Marion kiss. Marcellus shows up and tells Hill that the uniforms are in and he needs to beat it. He's collected the cash and the last train is heading out. Marion confesses that she knew about Hill's misrepresentation since a few days after he arrived. He couldn't have been in the gold medal class of Ot 5 because Gary wasn't built until Ot 6. But it doesn't matter. She loves and understands him. They walk back to her house. At the stage, the dance performance is still going on. Mayor Shin interrupts and brings Cowell to the stage, who tells the crowd that Hill has been conning them. The crowd disperses to find Hill and tarn Featherham. Mrs. Peru finds Winthrop, who's in tears on hearing about his hero's fall. Marcellus tries to lead the crowd astray repeatedly, and chaos ensues. Marcellus finds Hill and tells him to flee, as does Mrs. Peru. Marion tells him he doesn't owe her anything and urges him to run. Winthrop shows, and Hill explains to him that he's indeed a fraud and that he wanted Winthrop in the band because he's a wonderful kid and that he loves Marion. Winthrop says he wished he'd never come to town, but Marion said everything happened the way Hill said it would, in the way the kids walked around all summer and their parents look forward to the band. Hill tells Winthrop he can't run. For the first time ever, he got his foot caught in the door. He sings a reprise of Till There Was You to Marion, and they embrace. The crowd catches Hill and takes him to the gym. At the gym, Mayor Shin is haranguing the crowd, and then gets word that Hill has been caught. The sword of restitution has cut down Professor Harold Hill. Marion takes the stage and talks about what Hill did for the town. He brought them things to do, people to go out of their way for, and things of which to be proud. The mayor, though, asks, where's the band? The boys run in, clad in second-hand uniforms, with their instruments. Marion encourages Hill to lead the band in the minuet. He looks at the boys and nearly backs down, but she believes in him. He leads 
and the band breaks into a ragged version of the minuet. But they're playing music, somehow. The parents are ecstatic that their children are making music, good or no. The whole town exits the gym to the drums of 76 trombones, and the second hands are magically transformed into beautiful uniforms. The band marching expertly down the streets, masterfully playing the song, with Hill triumphantly leading them as the bandmaster, soon to be joined by Marion. You have to believe in the dream. an upbeat film. I like the evolving love and story of Marion and Hill, as well as the slow change that comes over Preston's con man, so that he gets his foot caught in the door. But to me, it's much more than that, and why I watch it at least annually. It's a wonderful preservation of what Middle America used to be, and in some cases, still is. Almost like a beautiful snow globe, but in this case, a 4th of July firecracker globe or a corn globe, it being Iowa. And I've seen Iowa. As was Wilson, I'm a son of the Midwest, born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Still have family in Wisco. Our son went to, coincidentally, the University of Wisconsin. And my wife and I have driven across Iowa many a time to visit. And driven. And driven. And seen miles of corn. And more miles. Hundreds of miles of corn. Hill was changed by Marion's love and music man, but he was also changed by the town, by River City itself. He grew attached to it. And like Hill, a jasper from the big dirty city, bigger than Dubuque, I was changed by a small town experience that stirs my nostalgia and connections to the film. Flagstaff, Flagstaff, Arizona, population 20,000 when I was a boy. And like Wilson, my growing up in that small town is enfolded in warm memories and deep nostalgia. It seemed everyone knew everyone else in town in those days, and certainly knew all about everyone's business. But it was a wonderful town to grow up in as a child. Marion's speech to the town of River City at the end of the film is reminiscent for me. There were things to do, things to be proud of, and people for whom to go out of your way. Flagstaff was a small town, but I was never bored. And I always felt that because it was so small, people knew me and were looking out for me. I felt safe and sheltered there. Small towns are like that. They often have the feel of a small island of people, surrounded by a sea of corn, or wheat, or forest, or desert, or miles and miles of nothing. But the lights burn in the windows at night, and it seems you're always welcome. They can be sheltering, sometimes enough for an entire lifetime, sometimes until you're grown enough and safe enough inside to go out into the wide world, where you then rebuckle your knickerbockers below the knee. 
Living in an inland island of people can also be a negative. It can give you narrowed views, though that's somewhat harder to account for in the interweb age. But it happens. People tend to believe what their family believes, what the people around them believe. And if your town circle is small enough, well, you get a smaller view of life. I know that not everyone in Flagstaff was happy when I was growing up there in the 60s. It was a narrow and straighted existence for many indigenous people and people of color. Flagstaff was white to a fault in those days. Even with the existence of what was once Arizona State Teachers College, which became Northern Arizona University, home of the Lumberjacks, many-time men's NCAA cross-country champions, thank you very much, my alma mater, gold medal class of 78, by which time I knew the town was not a paradise for everyone. It's bigger now, more inclusive, but elements of it still shine on in my memory. Even the funny down-home, pump-in-the-sunlight memories. If you went shopping for clothes in Flagstaff and the display item didn't fit you, you had to wait weeks for it to be ordered and arrive in your size. And sometimes the order came back wrong. See how you could never be bored in such a place? Besides stirring up memories, Music Man is just plain fun. The cast is wonderful and dynamic selling the story of the town and the con convincingly and humorously. The laughs aren't huge, they're subtle and callbacks to a bygone era. Preston and Jones are great, singly and together, jousting with one another to start, tender in the end. You ignore the age difference after a while. Ford and Gingold are a stitch, two great expressive actors and two great voices. And I like the Buffalo Bills, an excellent barbershop quartet, but they inhabit their roles and are very funny. Make him put up a bond. The music is fabulous, as it came almost verbatim from the Broadway show. Eight years of work by Wilson had shown through. The movie even hearkened to the Broadway show through the use of stage-like blackouts to change the action or scenes, thus saluting its progenitor. The film was released in 1962 and premiered in Wilson's hometown, good old Mason City, Iowa, during the North Iowa Band Festival, which must have warmed Wilson's heart. A film made for the ages, as was Music Man, isn't all about the money, but it did a very healthy $15 million in box office during its original release. Music Man was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. 76 Trombones was selected by AFI in its 100 Years, 100 Songs list. At the 1962 Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Editing, Best Sound, and won, of course, for Best Adapted Musical Score. A story in music this timeless has been remade again and again, with a 2003 made-for-TV movie starring Matthew Broderick. The musical production has toured the world in different iterations, and revivals on and off Broadway occur frequently, with stagings in 1965, 1980, 1988, 2000, and 2022, and actors as diverse as Burt Parks, Dick Van Dyke, and Hugh Jackman as the inimitable Harold Hill. Plus, every high school and community theater group has licensed the work and performed it in every gymnasium and rec center in the U.S. Oh my, what a wonderful experience. And it all came out of Meredith Wilson's love of his hometown, for which I take off my hat and salute him.
I often wonder what Hill did after settling down in River City with Marion. I think he ran for mayor after Shin retired, which would be fair restitution. Remember, my friends, no matter what size hamlet, village, town, or city you live in, look for the telltale signs of corruption in your youth. You got trouble, my friends, but you also have the wealth of your memories. You can find us on the web and social media. We're at those wonderful people on Instagram and at Films in the Dark on Twitter. Our website is thosewonderfulpeople.com, where we post pod episode transcripts, and you can leave your questions and comments. Our music is by Martin Shellikens, Alex Zavesa, and Alex Chernick. I'm David Jansen. Talk with you soon. And as always, I'll leave the last word to Mr. Scorsese. What are the essentials to you? What makes cinema? I think what makes cinema to me, uh, I think ultimately it's something that for some reason stays with you uh, so that a few years later you could watch it again or 10 years later you watch it again and it's different. In other words, there's more to learn Mm -hmm. about yourself or about life. Mm -hmm.